please open up your copies of the word to James chapter 1. Our focus today is going to be on verses 5 through 8. But let's begin reading from the beginning of the chapter. James 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we praise you as our creator, our provider, our redeemer, the one who gives us all good things, Lord. And even as we enjoyed this, this feast just a few minutes ago, Lord, and our bellies are still full and we are comfortable in these seats, Lord, we pray that you would give us an even greater appetite, Lord, for your word, that you would nourish us not just in our bodies, but in our minds and in our souls, Lord, with the, the preaching of your word. And even as we're going to open up how it is in your nature, Lord, to give, especially, Lord, to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask it, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit, that you would give wisdom, wisdom to, to me as I open these things up, and wisdom to those who hear it, Lord, that we would know how to understand these things and apply them to our lives. We pray, Lord, that you'd be glorified in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past February, U.S. News and World Report published an article online listing the 20 most stressful jobs in America. And included on this list were mental health counselor, security guard, firefighter, construction worker, and others. However, I have to take a couple exceptions with this list. For one thing, I read the whole thing over, and there was not one mention of music teacher on there. Uh, but secondly, I was surprised to find that coming in at number 10, was the job of a surgeon. And I would imagine that a surgeon would be up there near the top, maybe first or second, because being a surgeon is a stressful job. Aside from the long shifts that these men and women have to put in and the time spent on their feet, they have to go to work every day with the knowledge that people's lives are in their hands. They have to go to work knowing that there's very little or sometimes no room for error in their job performance. And the high pressure of this job is why most people who aspire to be a surgeon have to plan on putting at least 13 years of preparation before they're actually a surgeon. In that time, they have to get their bachelor's degree, they have to pass their MCAT exams, earn a medical degree, get their medical license, complete both a medical residency and a fellowship program. It's a lot of work. And we want our surgeons to be well prepared for the job ahead of them. It's a comfort for us to know that these professionals will spend years filling up their minds with information, filling up their minds with knowledge of how our bodies work, how the different systems and organs of our body work together. By the time that these men and women are board certified surgeons, they have filled themselves with an incredible amount of knowledge. Mentally, they're prepared to put this knowledge to practice. Mentally, they might have even prepared themselves for the situation they're walking into of being in that operating room. However, when the rubber meets the road, when they're there in that operating room and there's someone lying there before them, what they're dealing with now is no longer just a hypothetical situation, but they're dealing with reality. And in that moment, they're going to find that what they truly need to complete their job is not just head knowledge, but what they need is wisdom to be able to apply that knowledge. Now, in the first four verses of James, which we reminded about what I preached through last time, God teaches us that through the testing of our faith, he, he's building steadfastness of trust in him, and he's bringing his saints to a fullness of spiritual maturity. And we read these verses, and we say, yes, I, I agree with that. I, 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 I agree with what James is teaching there. 
mentally we can see how God is using our trials for this good purpose. And mentally, we might even prepare ourselves for the eventuality of falling into trials and saying, I'm going to count these things as, as joy. But when the rubber meets the road again, even though we're equipped with this knowledge, when we find that our lives are suddenly turned upside down, it can be difficult for us to see how any good could come from something that causes us so much pain. It can be difficult for us to see our trials as a step forward, a step towards that spiritual maturity, when everything seems to be chaos around us. So it is one thing to have this knowledge, to agree to this knowledge, but it's another thing to be able to put it into practice. And so what we need more than anything when we face these trials is wisdom, just like these surgeons. We need wisdom to, to know the scripture and to apply it, to put these verses into practice. We need the wisdom to see our lives not from our perspective, but from God's perspective. And so as we study verse 5 and following, we should be careful not to disconnect what came before these first four verses for what's coming afterwards. At first, it seems like maybe James has finished speaking about trials and he's moved on to a new subject. Now he's talking about wisdom. But if you look carefully at the original text, you're going to see this tiny little Greek word, day. It's a conjunction, which means that it, it connects the things that came before it to the things that are coming after it. And the New American, I think, handles this the best because it reads in verse 4, let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, but if any of you lacks wisdom. See, these are connected thoughts here. And maybe you noticed another connection between verses 4 and 5. Now, James was a very skilled Greek writer. And sometimes commentators um, pull out that he demonstrates an almost uh, poetic ability to link his thoughts in the Greek language. For example, in verse 1, he greets his readers with the Greek word karos, which is translated here as greetings, but it's also the same Greek word that's translated as joy. So you could imagine it's a, uh, a greeting like, like we might say to somebody, um, good morning or good day. You might say joy. And so you might translate it as James to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, joy. And then he links that to his next thought, count it all joy. And he also uses that same kind of linking here between verses 4 and 5. But this time he uses this word lacking. He says that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, if any of you lack wisdom. So the ultimate goal of our trials is that we'd be complete and lacking in nothing. But James brings special emphasis on the one thing that we absolutely cannot be lacking in, and that is wisdom. Now, since Pastor Drew has recently preached through the first few Proverbs, I'm not going to spend too long talking about what wisdom is. But briefly, we need to be reminded that wisdom is not the same thing as knowledge but it's the ability to make the right choices to be able to apply this knowledge, to bring about the best ends. And we remember that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And that true wisdom is not only the ability to make choices that are best for us, but the ability to make choices that are going to be most aligned with God's will. And finally, wisdom is not something that we are born with. It's not something that is natural to humans but it is something that the scriptures always talk about people having to find. We have to seek wisdom and find wisdom. Proverbs 8 says, whoever finds wisdom finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. So the first step that we need to take if we are going to find this wisdom is to realize that we lack it, that we need it. Now, young people and everybody, but particularly young people, often have a puffed-up opinion of their own wisdom. They think because they get good grades in, in school and on their spelling tests that they know it all, that they think that they have little to gain from listening to their parents. But this is just the opposite of what the Bible would teach about wisdom. Uh, Pastor Drew mentioned all the woes of Isaiah 5, and one of them is, Woe to those who are wise in their own sight, wise in their own eyes, and shrewd in their own sight. So having this perfect level of wisdom is never a state that we're going to reach as a child or as an adult, but it is something that we're to continually to seek after, to continually want to find. So often the biggest hurdle that young people 
nor all people for that matter, have to face in obtaining wisdom is our own pride and realizing that we lack it. Now, James, he knows that his readers are facing trials, and he knows that what they really need right now is wisdom. Yet he's tactful here with how he tells them. He doesn't come out and say, hey, you're not as smart as you think you are. He doesn't say, hey, you, I'm talking to you. You don't have wisdom. Now, certainly he knew that they lacked wisdom, but he says, if, if you lack wisdom, he gives them the chance here to, to self-reflect, to think the question over themselves and say, do I lack wisdom? Is this me? And to come to that conclusion that yes, I do lack this wisdom. Now Socrates, the famous Greek philosopher, he is quoted as saying something along the lines of, I know that I know nothing. I know that I know nothing. And it seems like an oxymoron to us at first. How can you know that you know nothing? Because then you know something. But there's a truth to this irony, that the more wisdom that we gain, the more we realize that we really don't know anything at all. The more we realize how much we actually are lacking in wisdom. But what hope did an unbelieving pagan philosopher like Socrates have in finding that wisdom? You see, he presents the problem, but he doesn't give us the solution. He says, I know that I know nothing, but he doesn't tell us where we can hope to find this wisdom. This is the same question that Job ponders in Job 28. And maybe we can turn there together now. Job chapter 28. Job is speaking here. He's responding to his friends and he ponders this question. Where can wisdom be found? So starting in verse 12, I'll read. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire, Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. And read verse 23. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. God understands the way to wisdom. If we were to give a, a modern 21st century equivalent to this discourse of Job, we might say, where can we find wisdom? You can't find wisdom at Walmart. You can't order wisdom two-day shipping on Amazon.com. We're not going to find this wisdom by going to an Ivy League college. We're not going to find this wisdom by staying up to date with news and current events, by following the best podcasters. We're not going to find this wisdom by following politicians or celebrities on social media, on Twitter. We're not going to find this wisdom by debating with strangers on Facebook. There's only one place that we can find this wisdom. And we have to come to the same conclusion as Job does. When he eliminates every other possibility, he comes to the right conclusion that only God understands the way to wisdom. And only God knows its place. So, the next question is, now that we know where it is, how do we go about getting this wisdom from God? God has it. We need it. How do we get it? Is there some test that we have to pass for God to give us this wisdom? Is there a list of requirements that we have to check off? Maybe we have to be a certain age before we're given this wisdom. Or maybe a certain amount of time has to go by before we're given this wisdom. Or maybe it's like in Greek mythology where there's some hero who has to climb to the top of Mount Olympus and sneak into the bedroom of the gods and wrestle wisdom away from them and bring it back to share with all mankind. James says to his readers, no, it's simple. You lack wisdom.
God has it, so ask him for it. He says in James 4, 2, you do not have because you do not ask. And so this begs the question then, if it's as simple, if getting wisdom is as simple as asking God for it, why would anybody hesitate to ask God for wisdom? Now, I imagine a situation, this isn't a real-life situation that I've gone through, but I imagine a situation where maybe there's a mother working in her kitchen, and she, all of a sudden she hears a crash coming from down the hallway, and so she runs down into her son's room and finds that his shelves have spilled over, and he's lying on the floor, and there's toys and books everywhere. And so after checking to make sure he's okay, she says, you know, what happened? He says, well, I looked up and my, my favorite toy was on the top shelf, and so I, I climbed up to go get it. She says, what were you thinking? I could have just given you that toy and saved you all this trouble. Why didn't you just ask me? And he says, well, I thought you would say no. And I think that this is really hitting on the point here, that this fear of rejection, the fear of being told no, keeps a lot of people from asking God or, or asking other people for things. So James commands his readers here that they are to ask God for wisdom. And for those people who would hesitate, he gives them four reasons to encourage them to ask God for wisdom. In the first place, he reminds them of the character of the God that they are asking. Now, I'm pretty sure that in most of your uh, translations, you're going to find a comma in verse 5. It happens right after the word God. It'll read, let him ask God, comma who gives generously. And while I agree that this is probably the best way to make sense of this Greek and put it into an English sentence that's readable, when you read the original Greek, there's no comma in between God and giving, that these are a related thought. The Greek words imply that the giving of God is not just a thing that he does. It's not that God occasionally gives, but it's a description of his character. Literally, we might translate this as, let him ask the giving God, or let him ask God who gives. It's not just something that he does, but it is who he is. It's an attribute of his divine character. Just like we know that God is love, and God is good, God is the giving God, and he gives out of the manifestation the fullness of his love and his grace and his goodness. Later on in this chapter, James reminds us that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is never going to change and stop being the God who gives. And when we read that everything that we have is a gift from God, we would be right to come to the conclusion that if God were not the giving God, we would have nothing at all. Even the unbelieving world receives the good gifts of God. And in his common grace, God gives to his whole creation, to all mankind. In Acts 17.25, Paul says, speaking of God, that he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in Psalm 145, we read that the eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. So we can take no credit for even the most basic of the things that we have. Even our life and our breath are given by God. And yet some gifts of God are not given to the world in general. Some gifts of God are given specially to his elect through saving grace. We all know John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And Paul says in Romans 8.32, that he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now when Paul says that God gave up his son for all, he certainly cannot mean the whole world. But certainly what he does mean is those who have saving faith in Christ. And similarly, when James says that God gives wisdom to all, the promise that he's, he's talking about here is not to the whole world, but to those who are true believers, to those who are Christians. 
And James wants believers to know that we have no reason to doubt that God will give us wisdom if we ask for it because the one that we are coming to, the one that we are asking, he is the giving God. We don't have to catch God on a good day. We don't have to worry if God's going to say no because he will never cease to be the giving God. Well, that's the first encouragement. Secondly, we read that he gives generously. Now, when we hear the word generously, we think of somebody who gives more than they're asked to. They give a a great quantity of things. And certainly God is generous in in this respect. We think about uh, King Solomon. When God promises to give him whatever he asks for and Solomon asks for a discerning heart, God gives him what he asks for. But then he also gives him all the things he didn't ask for. He gives him riches and honor and long life. But there is a nuance to this word that's translated generous that's kind of lost in English. If we translate this literally, it means the God who gives simply, the God who gives singly. See, God gives with a a single-minded intention. He has no ulterior motives behind his giving. He gives because it is his nature to give, and he gives because he delights to give. Now, maybe you've seen a a TV show or a movie that's about the the mafia, about a, a crime family, or maybe you've read a book. And inevitably, in these types of stories, there's always some poor guy who is in a desperate condition. He, he needs some need met. And so he turns in his desperation to this, this crime family. And the mob boss agrees to meet with him and give him whatever he asks for. And then after their meeting, he walks him out of the office, puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says something along the lines of, well, I'm happy that I could help you out in your time of need. But maybe a day will come when I will be in a position to ask a favor from you. And so this man, he gets the short-term help that he really needed. But as the story unfolds, we see that he's really living under the crushing weight of debt and that that small favor that's expected him is no small favor at all. But the God who gives simply, the God who gives singly, he's not looking for any return favors. He doesn't give, give to us so that we'll live under that crushing burden of debt. There are no strings attached to why he gives. And his gift is interest-free. In fact, he doesn't even expect return payment, not a single penny. He gives simply because he wants to give. And he gives singly, with no concern for himself, but with a single-minded intention of providing for all of his spiritual children. So that first encouragement is that God gives because he is the God who gives. And secondly, that he gives generously or simply The third encouragement is that he gives without reproach, without finding fault, as the NIV has it. When we come and we ask God for wisdom, or we ask him for anything for that matter, he doesn't hold it against us. He doesn't scold us for asking too much. And between people, when we're giving and asking between people, when people come to us and they've asked us for things before, and they come and they ask us again, it's pretty tempting to want to roll your eyes or go, fine, put out a big sigh or make some remark or maybe just privately think some, think less of that person who's asking us for help. And so we come with great hesitation sometimes to ask people for help because we know that they, they might be offended by it. Even friends and family, we hesitate to ask. You can imagine a situation where there's a, a tenant living in an apartment building and he just got a new job and he hasn't gotten his first paycheck yet and so he goes to his landlord and he says, look, I just need one more week to get my rent check in. And the landlord says, all right, I'll give you one more week, but I haven't forgotten that you still haven't paid me for the last month's rent. He brings it up again. Or maybe there's a college student. This guy's been slacking off all semester He's got one week left, and he realizes that if he doesn't ace his final exam, he's going to flunk. And so he says to his roommate, hey, you've got to help me cram for this test. You've got to help me pass. And the roommate says, fine, I'll help you. But you really should have been studying this whole time. 
See, when we ask a friend for repeated favors over and over again, it's eventually going to wear them down to the point that they don't want to help you anymore. Or even if they do help you, they do it with a, with a bad heart, begrudgingly. And we hesitate to ask people for help because we think that maybe we're asking too much or we're coming too often or that maybe they're going to think less of us or they're going to bring up the debt every time we see them. If we ask this, this brother for help every time we go to church, they're going to remind us of that past mercy that they showed us. But God gives without reproach. He doesn't say, that's it. You've asked too many times. I'm cutting you off. He doesn't say, you've asked for the same thing before, and look what you did with it. You're in the same mess you were last time. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. God doesn't say that. He doesn't give to us begrudgingly or reluctantly. He just gives. Now, a friend might bring up all the times that they've helped you in the past because they want you to stop coming to them. They want you to stop asking for help. But completely opposite to this, God reminds us of his past mercies. He reminds us of all the times that he's helped us before because he wants us to keep asking him. Think of David when he went to confront Goliath. Did he go, well, God's already delivered me from the paw of the lion and he's already delivered me from the paw of the bear. Maybe I'm pushing my luck to come and ask him to deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. No, it was the knowledge of God's past help that encouraged him, that gave him the confidence to come and ask for help once again. So God gives without reproach. And the final encouragement to come to God, to ask him for wisdom, is that it will be given. And it should come as no surprise, since it is God's nature to give, and because he gives generously, simply, and because God gives without reproach, that when we ask him for wisdom, he will give it. And here we have a clear reference to the, the teaching of Jesus. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now James knows these people he's writing to. He knows some of their struggles that they're going through. And he knows that what they need to be steadfast in these trials is wisdom. They need God's wisdom to see how God is using these trials to mature them. They need God's wisdom to know how to respond, how to do God's will in these situations. And so he says to them, don't ask. God will give you the wisdom you need when you ask because he is the giving God. Well, over the next three verses, James turns now from the character of the one who is doing the giving to the character of the one who is doing the asking. Let's read verses six through eight one more time. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James is making it clear here that when someone comes to God and asks for wisdom and he doesn't receive it, it is not the fault of the giver, but it is the fault of the asker. He just outlined all these reasons why we should be encouraged to come to God, that God will indeed give the things that he's promised. Now he says, when you pray, you need to believe this. Our prayers need to be prayers of faith. And here is another echo of Jesus. Let's um, turn to Matthew 21 for a minute. I think one of the reasons that Christians love this book of James is because the teachings of Jesus are just all throughout it. Matthew 21, verse 18. In the morning, 
speaking of Jesus, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now this is a passage which has been greatly abused by false teachers. People who would say, if you just have enough faith, if you just mean it enough, God's going to do whatever you ask. It's almost like God's going to cut you a, a blank check if you just have enough faith, as if faith was something that we could measure. They promise a man who can't walk that we're going to pray over you and you're going to be healed. And then when that man is unable to stand, they say, well, I guess you just didn't have enough faith. Now, clearly, this is incorrect and a heretical view of both prayer and God. When Jesus says, whatever you ask in prayer, we need to understand this to mean that God is going to give the things that he's promised when we ask him, including wisdom. And when we pray, we need to have faith that he is indeed going to give us the things that he has promised. In Hebrews 11, we read that without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the faith that we need to have when we come to God in prayer is a simple faith. The writer of Hebrews gives two simple descriptions of this faith. He says, first, that we must believe that God exists. And second, that he rewards those who seek him. A prayer that's offered without any faith, without any faith that God even exists, that can't be said to be a prayer at all. We see in, in, in movies sometimes where someone looks out at the stars and they say, God, if there is a God or if anyone out there can hear me, this person is, is not praying. They have no faith that God even exists. And one who prays with no expectation of receiving the things that God has already promised has a warped view of the God that they're praying to. Also notice that James doesn't say you must have enough faith. Or you must have a mature and a complex faith to receive these things. He's pleased with faith like a grain of mustard seed. God is pleased with even the most simple of faiths, even a childlike faith. In the Gospel of Luke, he says, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So the faith that God is looking for in our prayers is simple. What he wants is for us to trust him. When we fall into trials, he wants us to come and to know that he is God. To know that when everything seems out of control on our end, that he is ordering all these things for a good purpose, for his glory and for our good. We don't need to understand the situation. What we need to do is lean upon the promises of God and trust that he's going to keep them. So instead of letting this verse discourage you from praying, for some fear that maybe, maybe my faith is not strong enough. Let this verse encourage you to come with a simple, childlike faith that your Father is faithful to give the things that he has promised when we ask him. Well, James goes on to say that when our prayers are offered in faith, that there is no doubting. And this is another section that we need to be careful on. Because this verse could also be taken grossly out of context. This verse could be used to, to plant a seed of despair that grows in good and true believers. Last week in Sunday school, uh, Pastor Drew, reading through the Bruce Reed, talked about the ways that Satan the accuser accuses true believers. And remember that Satan, he knows the scriptures. And one of his devices is to take the word of God and twi to twist it. You think about, even in the, in the garden, how he said, did God really say? Or how he used the, the scriptures to tempt Jesus in the wilderness, to jump off of the temple. 
we can see how Satan would not only cause us to feel doubts, but also how he would double down and twist this verse to accuse our hearts over these very same doubts. He would say something to us along the lines of, haven't you experienced doubts? Why should you expect to receive anything from the Lord when your faith is so weak? And it's true at times that we do see the weakness of our faith. Believers, even mature believers, experience periods of doubt. Even, even consider Abraham, the, the hero of faith. Did Abraham ever experience doubts? Well, we know that he did. In, in Genesis 17, when God promises to give a child to Sarah, how does Abraham respond? With faith? No. We read that he fell on his face and laughed. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? This was a moment of doubt for Abraham. And yet, Paul, in Romans 4, he commends Abraham. He says that no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. So Abraham, we see that he had this moment of doubt, but over the course of his life, he's commended for his faith because he was consistently coming to God in faith. When Paul says that Abraham did not waver, he's using the same Greek word here as James does when he says that we have to come without doubting. And so his point is not that we need to have a spotless record, that the only way that God's going to give us anything when we pray is if we have never had a single doubt in our lives. But the point is rather that our lives are to show an overall consistency of faith even as Abraham did. And when we do experience those moments of doubt, we need to remember how it was that Jesus dealt with people when he encountered people who showed a weakness of faith, how he dealt with even doubting Thomas, how he was patient with him, how Peter, the one who he said he's going to build his church on this man, how Peter experienced doubts and how Jesus was tender and patient with him. Or even think about the father of this, this child with epilepsy who came to Jesus and said, I believe, help my unbelief. We need to imitate this man. When true believers, when we experience doubt, we need to confess them. We need to come again in prayer, trusting that even though we don't understand the situation, that we're leaving these things in the hands of the God who does. But this is not the kind of doubting that James is talking about here. This periodic doubting that we might feel. The one who asks without faith, he says. The one that James says should not expect to receive anything from the Lord is one whose doubts are on even more basic, a more fundamental level. This man prays, but as he prays, he doubts. He doubts, first of all, that he even needs any help from God. He prays, and yet he doubts God's willingness to answer him. He doubts God's ability to answer him. He doubts God's faithfulness to be true to the promises that he has made. And maybe he prays, but even as the words are coming out of his mouth, in his mind he's thinking, what am I doing? What's the point of all this? This is never going to work. One day this doubting man is coming to God in prayer, and the next day, He's seeking wisdom from himself and from the world instead of from God. And we don't need to come up with any type of clever illustration here because James, the skilled preacher that he was, gives us a clear picture of this man who is doubting. He says that this one, one who doubts, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And the picture is not of going out on a boat on a sunny day where you can look out in every direction and see nothing but smooth sea and the glassy reflection of the clouds above. This is a picture of the sea on a stormy day when the gusts of wind aren't just causing little ripples, but they're pushing the waves so that they are swelling up here and they're ebbing down there. And then as the winds shift, suddenly it's shifting so that the peaks are over there and the valleys are over there. The sea is in a constant state of chaos it never has the same shape. It never has the same texture. 
And you can imagine if you were a, a painter and you were standing by the, the Sea of Galilee and you were trying to paint this, this stormy lake and so you put the first wave in and then you look back up and all of a sudden it's gone. It's shifted over here. And so you go to paint it there and then you look up and it's, and it's constantly in motion. This sea is in a constant state of flux and movement. It is unsettled and it is unstable. And James is saying that the man who is characterized by doubt instead of faith, that this man is unsettled and he's unstable in all his ways. Rather than showing a consistency of faith, this man is like the wave and he, he vacillates back and forth between faith, between doubt, between belief and unbelief. He's trying to keep one foot in the church and he's trying to keep one foot in the world at the same time. And the result is this wavering and unstable soul. Even as Jesus said, no one can serve two masters because he will hate the one and love the other. Remember how James was, was tactful with the first time he approached the subject of wisdom. But three, three chapters later in James 4, he's, he's a little more abrupt. He cuts right to the chase. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Yet this man, this unstable doubter, he thinks to himself, well, why can't I have both? Is it really impossible to serve two masters? Can't I have friendship with the world and friendship with God? A man simply cannot be characterized both by faith and doubt at the same time. What this man is trying to do is live a double life. And this is why James calls him a double-minded man. And James is the only writer in the whole of New Testament to use this word of double-minded. And if we were to translate it literally, this Greek word which is dipsikos, dipsychos, it's where we get the word psychology, psychiatry from, he's literally two-souled or two-lived. It's not that this man is a hypocrite where he's living one way on the inside but putting on a good face on the outside, but he's trying to be two people at the same time. He's a spiritual schizophrenic. Now, in Pilgrim's Progress, we read of an encounter that Christian has on his way to the celestial city. He's walking along with Hopeful, and they encounter a man whose name was Bayans. And he's also on his way to the celestial city, so they strike up a conversation with him. And he doesn't tell him his name, but he tells them that he's from the town of Fair Speech. And so Christian says, this town of Fair Speech, I've heard of. And as I remember, they say, it's a wealthy place. And Bayans responds, well, yes, I assure you that it is. And I have very many rich kindred there. Pray, says, says Christian, who are your kindred there, if a man may be so bold? And Bayans responds, well, almost the whole town, and in particular my lord Turnabout, my lord Time Server, and my lord Fair Speech, from whose ancestors that town first took its name. Also, Mr. Smooth Man, Mr. Facing Both Ways, Mr. Anything, and the parson of our parish, Mr. Two Tongues, was my mother's own brother by father's side. And to tell you the truth, I am become a gentleman of good quality, yet my great-grandfather was but a waterman, looking one way and rowing another, and I got most of my estate by the same occupation. So the descriptions of these men from the town of Fair Speech, they're caricatures of sort of what it means to be a double-minded man, particularly this man, Mr. Facing Both Ways. And even his own occupation of being a, a waterman, it gives us this picture of a man who is on a rowboat. He's not on a kayak where he's facing the direction he's moving, but he's on a rowboat where he's facing one way and his oars are propelling him in the opposite direction. And as we read on in the chapter, the, the three of them encounter a man named Demas. And he calls out to Christian. He says, come and dig in my silver mine. Dig for treasure. Christian resists. But listen what Bunyan says happens with Bayans. By this time, Bayans and his companions were come again within sight, and they at the first beck went over to Demas. 
Now whether they fell into the pit by looking over the brink thereof, or whether they went down to dig, or whether they were smothered in the bottom by the damps that commonly arise, of these things I am not certain. But this I observed, that they were never seen again in the way. Bayans did not make it to the celestial city. And James, it seems, is teaching us the very same thing. That the type of doubter that he's talking about, this fundamental doubter, this double-minded man, that he is not a believer at all. One who is looking to both God and the world for their wisdom, looking to both God and to the world for their worldviews of how to think. This person cannot be said to have faith at all. He doesn't really expect that his prayers will be answered. And so James is saying that he shouldn't expect his prayers to be answered. He shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. And this in no way changes what we were just talking about, about the character of our giving and generous Lord. The reason that this man will not receive anything in return for his prayers is not the fault of the giver, but is again the fault of the asker. Remember that God gives simply. He gives singly. And God wants us to ask in the same way that he gives. He gives with the simple intent of giving, with a single-minded purpose of providing for his spiritual children out of the love that he has for them. And that's what he expects for us when we ask him. He wants us to come with a single-minded trust, with a single-minded love and this simple childlike faith. He's not interested in a half-hearted devotion, but we read in Psalm 119 that he blesses those who seek them, seek him with their whole heart. And think about Jesus' response when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Does he say to love the Lord your God with a divided heart? With half of your heart? No, he says love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. God desires to have this heart intimacy. He's not interested in half a heart. He wants the whole thing. And even for those who are living like this spiritual schizophrenic, he even calls these men, these women, to repent. Remember how we read a few minutes ago that scathing rebuke of James 4 when he said, you adulterous people. Yet, he gives hope to them. Because just a few verses later, we read in James 4.8, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So maybe there's somebody who's, who's hearing this today. And they're living like this spiritual schizophrenic. Maybe you're trying to maintain a friendship with the world at the same time as you're trying to maintain a friendship with God. You're trying to keep one foot in both camps. God calls these types of people to repent from their double-mindedness. He says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. These people need to come. Come with your doubts confess them and leave them at the feet of the Lord. We need to come with a childlike trust in the God who gives, even he who gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We need to pray even as the psalmist did in Psalm 119, that with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. The only remedy for this double-mindedness is to seek Jesus with your whole heart. For believers, I hope that these verses are an encouragement for you, especially verse 5, that you can come without hesitation to God when you pray. He is the giving God, and we can never ask him too much. Before I came up here, we sang the hymn. The first two stanzas read, Come, my soul, thy suit prepare. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself has bid thee pray, therefore will not say thee nay. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring, for his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. He's never going to turn away anyone who comes to him in faith. 
And he may give to us and we may squander the gifts that he gives to us. But he doesn't remind us of our past failures. But instead he reminds us of his past mercies. And he does that so that we will come boldly in prayer. Bring large petitions. We can come confidently in prayer. And in particular, we can be confident that when we do come to God and ask him for wisdom, that he will give it, in particular in our times of trial. We can have wisdom if we ask for it. Remember that quote from Socrates, I know that I know nothing. Well, he, stops, he stops just a little short of the truth there. God supplies our need for wisdom when we ask him in faith. I would give you a different quote instead. This is a quote by the theologian John Murray. He says that it is the apex of Christian piety to trust in God, just as it is also the foundation to say, I do not know, but I do know that God does. Rather than saying, I know that I know nothing, we need to think, I do not know, but I do know that God does. We may not understand the specifics of our trials and how God is working them for good, but we can come with this faith and confidence that God does know. So let's pray that God would grow us in our faith to help us to trust, help us not to doubt, and to worship him with a single mind and a whole heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as we pray to you now, we are reminded of your faithfulness, of the delight you have, Lord, to answer prayer. Lord, how you have promised good things. You have promised wisdom to those who ask for it, Lord. And we come to you praying now for this very same wisdom, Lord, knowing that when we ask for it, that the God who is generous and gives without rebuke will give to all who ask for it in faith. Oh Lord, we pray that you would guide us as we walk through this world, as we face trials, as we face things that puzzle us and perplex us, Lord, things that we can't make sense of, Lord, that in those times we would not despair, that we would not think that we need to wrap our minds around it to be able to, to figure it out, Lord, but that we would come humbly we would come like children, Lord, with a trust that you are ordering these things. And that, Lord, through these trials, you would indeed work us, Lord, to be more mature, to be more like the Lord Jesus. And, Lord, we also pray for those, those who perhaps today are here in church and they're living as a Christian. And yet, Lord, they walk out the door and they are friends with the world. We pray, Lord, you would help us all to examine our hearts, to make sure that we are indeed worshiping you with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds, that though we walk in the world, Lord, we would not be of the world, and that for those who are double-minded, Lord, you would call them even today to repent from their sins and to be cleansed from their double-mindedness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.